Welcome to the Westside Barbell Podcast. Today's guest is Jason Coker. Jason, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming in. What's going on? <laughs> glad to um, be here. We're going to jump straight into it. And what I'd like to start with is when did you begin powerlifting? Uh, fuck, man. I guess, really, I started in prison. So I lifted weights before. I've lifted weights since I was a kid, but I, uh, they had a weight pile in the penitentiary. And that was before they took all the weights out. And I went in and I was about 148 pounds. So uh, I felt like I needed to do something to pass the time and probably kind of try to be strong, get ready for war. So I started lifting in there and had good form. Someone actually asked me in there if I uh, had competed in powerlifting before because I benched then the same way I bench now. I mean, nothing's really changed too much. So it all just came naturally to you? The benching did, yep. Squat did, deadlift did. I'm a fucking great deadlifter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what sort of training did you do when you were in penitentiary? Uh, man, I just, I'd bench do basically it was bodybuilding type stuff just with heavy weight you know i didn't uh i never thought about training i never tried to program it back then and you know i didn't have a routine per se i'd kind of did you know bench chest and triceps together uh biceps and shoulders biceps and back legs shit like that it just uh, i make sure i do everything once a week that was really the I probably did a lot more training than I needed to. Yeah. You know, because I didn't have anything else to do. But uh, I've always enjoyed lifting weights. You know, it came naturally. I was strong naturally. Um, I just, it was something I was good at. Was there penitentiary meets? Was there yes, powder? that was the first meet I ever did was in prison. What was that like? Uh, raw. <laughs> <laughs> just had a belt. I competed at 148 and... Man, I benched, it's 365 or 385, I don't remember which. Um, I pulled 405, and I don't remember what I squatted. I've got the results written down somewhere. I've got a certificate, but that was, I actually had, I still do, the uh, Colorado State Penitentiary bench press record for the 148-pound class. That was the first record I had. Were you hooked then? Like, did the, you say that yeah. this is a sport for you? Well, I don't know, man, if I was hooked then because I got out of prison and didn't jump right into competing. I just, uh, I'm a competitive person. Everything I do is a competition. Um, so it just in there, it was fun. I did it, and I continued lifting when I got out. I ended up back in prison, so I didn't really, you know, didn't start competing until... I think the first meet I did a meet at Big Iron Gym, a full powerlifting meet, was the first one I did, and that was in 2000 or 2001, I believe, and that was just on a whim. Uh, and then I didn't do anything until 2006 is when I actually got my official real start. You know, when did you uh, start experimenting with like uh, bench shirts and powerlifting gear? When did that come into the play? Uh, I had in 2001, I bought a Inzer Blast shirt, and that was my first experience in the shirt. I believe it was 2001, um, and a Ricky Dale Crane squat suit, 
I didn't have a deadlift suit. That was the first experiences I had. Uh, the Enzer Blast shirt actually blew. I was trying to bench 500 pounds, and that thing split wide open when I was bringing the weight down. And so my my I wasn't real impressed. Yeah. But that back then was when bench shirts were basically T-shirts. They're nothing like what they are now. My first experience with the gear, like what we have now, was in 2006. And was that within Big Iron? No, no. that was actually, I was training at, was it Bally's, I think? Bally's or 24-hour, I don't remember what it was, in Colorado, not Colorado, excuse me, in uh, Dallas, Texas. And I was lifting there. There was an old school guy there that used to compete, and he had a set of bands. I just... I thought they were big, giant rubber bands. You know, I didn't yeah. know what the fuck they were. And I started talking to him about it. And he was talking about either Louis Simmons and the bands and trying to explain all that to me. And I'm like, yeah, okay, cool, whatever. I wanted to do a national championships. He told me how, you know, you know you, I got to compete. Told me how the, the road to take to do that and how to qualify. So I found a meet and did that meet. It was the Texas Cup. Um in 2006 the texas cup i competed i the way i benched then i went i bought a shirt from house of pain and enzo shirt and i just put it on at the meet i never trained in it you know i didn't know what the fuck i was doing i went to somebody asked him to help me put the the shirt on put it on went and laid down on the bench and benched five mid fives um squatted i honestly i can't remember the numbers at that meet but uh, it qualified me to go to national championships, which was three and a half months later in Las Vegas. But uh, that was my first. I, like I said, I hadn't been training them. I just get in at the meet, put it on, and see what I could do. So you were pretty much an individualist training yourself with this help of this at guy at that point in time. Right. Yep. Um, so then, when when does it start becoming serious? Uh, after I qualified for nationals, there was a gym in Dallas called Bad Attitude Gym, and I hooked up with some of those guys and started training. You know, got a different bench shirt, a Rage, double ply Rage X, and started training consistently with them for about three and a half months. And that's when I went to national championships, you know, in June, I believe they were of 2006 and there's when i set my first world record what why'd you bench 711 at 198 um was this around the first time you've met lou or anyone from that Westside? was the very first time i met lou i didn't know you know i'd been in the penitentiary and it hadn't been in i didn't know who louis simmons was i had heard the name at bad attitude gym you know so i knew he was the godfather they'd say knew yeah. everything about powerlifting and came up with all these different training, you know, ideologies, whatever the word is, and had the conjugate system, but I didn't follow it. I didn't know it. I didn't know yeah. anything about it. I met Lou at the, uh, at the meet. I went and sat down and talked to him, asked him a question about getting stronger, the deadlift, how do I increase my pool? And he started rattling off I guess he maybe he assumed I kind of knew what the fuck I was doing yeah. and he was wrong because he he might as well have been talking another language. I didn't understand anything. Matter of fact, all I thought was, fuck, where's Christine? Come yeah. some get me away from this crazy old man because I just I, I didn't understand it. He just kept on going. You know, Lou, 
that's one thing. The more you, when you know Lou, you start talking to him about strength, and he'll talk and talk and talk. That's I mean that's what he lived for. Um, when did your relationship start to become, I guess, um, more mainstream? Where like you started realizing who Westside and who Louie was? Uh, but after well, I, I I hurt my back really really bad in 2010. It was August 2010, or was it 2009? And I ended up in the hospital. I had blown my L4, L5, and it was a real severe bad rupture. Um, I was in the hospital for about two weeks. They kept telling me I was going to have to have surgery. You know, there's just no way I wasn't going to walk right. I wouldn't lift again, blah, 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 the things they always tell you. Uh, and I called Louie. I don't even remember where I got his phone number from. But at that point, I knew that he was this big thing, you know, and I kind of had, in my mind, he was a superstar from everything that I had been told. Um, I didn't look at him that way because, again, I had I had never talked to him and I didn't know much about him. But yep. I knew that he was the one I needed to talk to. You know, I was, Christine actually told me to give him a call. She knew more about him at the time than I did. So I called him and he... Uh, I asked him what I needed to do, and he said, the first thing you need to do is get out of the hospital. <laughs> so I did. And he told me, that's when he first started preaching to me about the reverse hyper and traction, and I needed traction my back. You know, I remember he told me, get some ankle weights, put ankle weights on, walk around with ankle weights and when I'm doing stuff around the house or doing yard work. You know, just reverse hyper, traction, traction, traction. He said, you got traction in your back. And um, I didn't. <laughs> and I paid the price years down the road. Um, so to jump back a little bit, because I don't want to overlook some of the stuff you did, but from 2006 to 2009, where were your numbers going during that period? Oh, man. Because you hit a world record there. I hit a world It was 2000, 2006, I benched 7-Eleven at 198. Um, then... I know I had Sean Frankel. It was always Sean Frankel and I were going back and forth with the world records. He was the first one. At, I benched the 7-Eleven. He come along a while later and benched 735. So it stayed at 735 for a while, or 74. I don't remember the exact number. And then he, he upped it and benched 804. That's when I got my first, I, I, th I started thinking, well, hell, if Sean can do it, you know, if someone can bench 804 pounds, then so can I. And I'd never even thought about it, yeah. ever, ever. From that week, after he did it, all I did, I started handling that eight plus pounds. You know, I put it in my hands, started working it on boards, and just started handling it pretty, pretty much every week. And the next meet that I did, I benched 810, I believe, and got a world record. Um, Frankel took it from 810, he benched 855. And I figured that was going to be, you know, that that yeah. was locked in. I didn't see that on my horizon, but I was going to try. Uh, had the back injury, couldn't squat, couldn't pull, couldn't do much of anything. I mean, even my bench took a huge, huge hit. And again, the doctors had told me I would never lift the weights heavy, yeah. heavy again. You know, it just wasn't going to happen. Uh, got out of the hospital started training, started focusing mostly on the bench because I couldn't do anything else. And 
it was so 2009 was the back injury. It was January of 2010 at the Scott at the Mendelssohn Classic that I benched my first uh, 903 at 220 for the that was the all time world record at 220. Is that when you made the cover of Powerlifting USA? Yes. Yep. Um, how important was that? I'm not even sure if it was a rivalry, but going back and forth with um frankel frankel yeah that was huge because and i think that's the story with powerlifting in general a lot of the things that happen in powerlifting you think there's a ceiling and then you realize there's not you know and it's just like with anything somebody does something and every it opens up a window fighters you know, the fighters stay unbeaten and you, you got amanda nunez who's unbeaten forever someone figures her out and beats her it's the same thing, you know, with with powerlifting. People, Frank will bench the eight eight oh four. I knew I could. You start pushing yourself because you realize, hey, it can be done. Yeah. You know, look back then there wasn't a whole lot of thousand pound squatters that weren't super heavies. Now look, you got raw guys doing it. You know, it's just that was huge with he and I because he was number one, you know, across the board and. I knew going into a meet, I'm, I, I believe in myself, but I'm also a realist, you know, and I knew the only thing I can do if he's competing in my weight class is I'm competing for second. There was nothing, nothing magical was going to happen that day that I, I can out pull him. Yeah. I got to where I could squat with him. And actually when, when I started getting real strong, he was kind of on his way out, but, uh, I could squat Back, well, not even then. I couldn't squat. You know, I was in the nines. He was in the thousands. If I was, in, he was at nine hundred. I was in the eights. He was always one step ahead. You know, he'd been doing it for quite a while. Um, but he, if it wasn't for him, I maybe I never benched eight hundred. Maybe I never benched nine hundred. You know, and I always looked up to Frankel. In my mind, he's in my. Everyone has their opinion. To me, he's the most impressive lifter that I've ever seen. Somebody doing the things that he did at that weight just always blew my mind and he did it with ease everything he did was it looked like he had 100 pounds in the tank left so he uh it was it was huge because it drove me did you guys ever talk oh yeah yep so he had no problem like did he tell you training tips anything along oh yep he's he's frank was awesome you know, he was one of the most encouraging people at the meet. Maybe because he knew you couldn't beat him. <laughs> but, you know, he, he'd help everybody out. But I don't believe that. I believe he was one of the ones that even if you did beat him, he'd have been the first one to congratulate you. But, uh, yeah, he I talked to him all the time. He gave me different tips. And, you know, like I said, he just he drove me in general. Always did. Was there any one big thing that he said to you that stuck with you? No, just he's he again. He's big on technique, as is Westside. You know, so he he did techniques everything, and that's I believe that as well. If your technique fails, then you know, yes, can you muscle it up? Some people can. I became a, a pro at muscling shit up that I shouldn't have been able to. Yeah, but because my technique was so poor. Um, not necessarily in the bench, but yes, he was he was big on technique and uh, big iron style was heavy, you know, training heavy, pretty much a lot, a lot of heavy training. And that's kind of, when I started, that's what I did was heavy, a lot of heavy, heavy training. Did 
everyone you grew up around when you started powerlifting uh, from Frank, seeing everyone around from that 2006 to 2011, 12 before you got here, did that set the standard for you in being open and talking with people? Because I've seen at meets, like you, you obviously have your personality comes through, but you always answer questions. And was that set the standard there from watching all these people or is that just who you are? I think it's who I am. People have this perception of me that I'm an asshole. And <laughs> uh, I'm only an asshole if I'm given a reason to be an asshole. Yeah. You know, but I want to see everybody do good. I love helping people out and always have with lifting weights. Um, it, 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 it's, it's enjoyable and I want to see them succeed. If somebody beats me in a competition, I'm not mad at them for beating me. More power to them. I'm mad at myself because, you know, especially if it's something I could have controlled. Yeah. But I, I've never been a, a hater who's going to hate on somebody for doing well in this sport. And I think that's what used to be special about this sport was the camaraderie in the sport. That's what drew me, a lot of what drew me to powerlifting was the camaraderie, you know, and the fact that you go to meets and everybody's helping each other out. You, you got two guys that are battling each other on the platform but those same two guys are yelling and cheering each other on, you know, when they're lifting. So it, it, there's a lot of camaraderie, and that's that's what was so special about the sport. A lot of that's gone now. Um, you had a few uh, mishaps during uh, your lifts. One so when the bar, the bar came down and smacked you right in the chin, right? Yeah, the throat. The throat. Yep. It's it uh. It got man. If those fucking the what what are the, the little safety ref, face savers yep. had been on there, it'd have been a done deal. Seven fifty five, uh, I think it was. I think that's a lot of things people don't understand. What spotters doesn't mean they're going to spot the weight. No, and it's, it's hard not, to beat gravity. Yes, and it ain't. People a lot of times get pissed off at the spotters, and there is situations where you have every right to be pissed off at a spotter because they fail, but. Like in the situation that when that happened to me, it wasn't the spotter's fault. I mean, that kind of weight goes in a second if something goes wrong. And sometimes they, it can't be caught. It happens so fast. That's why their face savers are there. Thank God they were set. Uh, did you even have time to think going, oh, I'm in trouble here? Or did it just happen like it that? It just happened. Just it, it, one minute it was going up and then... I misgrooved it and shot back, and that was it. That, that, I had a worse one. The worst one, though, was the 900 or 9. I think it was 9, 905, 900, 905. And that one came down and actually landed on my face. And how it didn't kill me, I do not know. Did you get any serious damage from it? Nope. Well, I don't know. Maybe. That's Christine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's fast forward to where... You've interacted with Louie. What led to you driving up here all the time to train? Uh, we moved to Indianapolis, and it seemed like the the thing to do. And I still, you've asked me this before, I still don't remember. I think Louie basically just told me, yeah, come on down and train, I think was my invite. Because you came down with Billy, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And I know Billy had talked to him. Yeah. So I know uh, back then I was messing around with some painkillers from time to time, and I know uh, 
Billy had called Louie and was talking to Louie one day because Billy told me I had eaten a whole bunch of painkillers, and Billy said something to Louie about it. And uh, Louie said, man, go ahead. You need to hurry up and get him down here before he kills himself. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was kind of that was the, the invite, you know, just come on down and train. So I rode down here with Billy and trained in, in the night with uh, Hoff and them. What was um, going through your head for your first training session? Like coming in here, seeing the gym. Oh, I loved work it. Yeah, the energy, you know, uh, the music. It was loud, dirty, you know, shit everywhere. Just what you want in a in a powerlifting gym. I want to train somewhere where it, it, it's a it, it doesn't got to be just destroyed. But I want to feel like I need a tetanus shot every time I leave. <laughs> and that was how I felt leaving Westside. And that's it was awesome. You know, it was the environment, the energy, everybody. Uh, it was a competition. Training was a competition in itself because you're always trying to one-up the next guy. Was that as important, if not more, than how to train the environment? Absolutely. For me, I feel like it was even more important. I think environment is everything. You know, environment and uh, mental strength, those two things to me are mental strength i think first it'd be mental your mentality and then environment and yes obviously the way you train is yeah. gonna and how you train plays into everything how did the uh your experience when you first got to westside compared to other gyms you trained at because you did train at some famous gyms in their own right um <laughs> Westside was way, excuse me, way, the environment was the most intense, more intense than any any place I'd ever been. Um, I trained at Big Iron for a little bit. Big Iron was awesome. It was another, it was, it was intense and everybody. There was more of a, I don't want to call it a, the energy was different. You know, it's not negative and positive energy. I'm not really sure how to, they had big iron had just as much energy but it was a different kind of energy um i guess maybe west side it, I, it depends on the person for me west side i like the energy much more it was more uh angry or violent feeling just kind of just an angrier kind of energy big iron it didn't feel i it, i can't explain it it wasn't it, i'm not saying west side's energy was yeah. negative it was just more aggressive it suited me. It seems from talking to a lot of different people that as soon as you stepped in, there was a standard. And you couldn't explain it or whatever, but you never wanted to go below yep. whatever that energy standard was because you were representing the Chucks, the, all these people that set forth because you knew who they were. Yes. And then you had the Lou factor. Yes, absolutely. And the Lou factor was huge. So you trained in the evening. Uh, with Hoff and that crew, what led to you from coming from the evening to eventually moving to Columbus and training in the morning? I uh, We were in a position that we were able to move to Columbus, and I transferred from the, the company that I was working for. I relocated and transferred up here, and because of my work schedule, I couldn't train in the evenings no more. So I started training in the mornings, and that's pretty much, that was what led to it. I just couldn't make the evenings. What was that like 
been more involved with Louis. What was it like to be, I want to say a coach, but mentor, like having him there in the morning? What was the difference between morning and evening for you? Um, you, you push yourself, you know, there's a difference when Lou's around, maybe not in the beginning, but Lou and I, Lou and I had a different kind of relationship and training with Lou, Lou got me fired up because Lou would tell me I couldn't do something or I shouldn't do something or, um, and my whole thing was, okay, fucker, I'm going to show you. You know, fuck you, watch this. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many times I came out from underneath the bar yelling, fuck you. You know, now what? Look. And he'd just shake his head. Yeah, you did it. <laughs> you know, look down, kick the ground, look like a little kid kicking a rock. Uh, but he was happy about it. Yeah. You know? But he drove me, because I always wanted to prove him wrong. And I believe he knew, he knew I could do, but I think that's how he pushed me. He he knows how to push everybody. Everybody, he, he pushes them in different ways, but he pushes everybody. And some of them get pushed right out the door because a lot of people can't deal with it. You know, they just, they, they he breaks them, which is, I think, obvious. I mean, that's what he wants. If you're not going to stick around, I think that was one of the reasons he would push the way he did, and he liked to be pushed back. Yeah, He'd never say it, but I don't believe for a minute Lou wanted people that just sat there and were yes men at all. I don't believe it for one minute. What was very interesting to see was breakfast. Everything was set up at breakfast, whether you knew it or not, because eventually the conversation would usually go from, did you see the fights? then something is said and then it starts um did you realize that that was setting up from breakfast from bob evans going into the gym you're like i want to prove this motherfucker oh wrong. yeah yep i was already devising what i was gonna do um because that to me seeing the the towards the end of that that was such a critical part to what made the gym was one i remember uh jake norman when he would come down ordering dessert. Yep. There were so many people who went through the whole menu of Bob Evans, but no one wanted to miss breakfast because something was going to be said and you could understand the tone of the day based on that. Yep, breakfast was awesome. Um, breakfast was great. What were, do you have any memorable stories? For, I know there's a lot, but is there any ones that come to mind? Man, the whole, the psychopath, oh, yeah. that's, that's, that's a huge one. Because Lou and his uh, tattoo, he told me, Coker, Coker, hey, look over at Lou's. And I look over and get up, and I'm like, the fuck is on his knuckles? And he thought it was psychopath, but they had forgotten a letter, and it said psychopath. <laughs> and I said, what the fuck is that on your hands, Lou? And he looks up and start talking about his tattoo artist and fucking. Uh, <laughs> I said I ain't never seen a psychopath. Well, the, <laughs> the little bit in that is he goes, "It's uh, it's what they do in the penitentiary." And yeah. you're, you're like, "I've been to prison <laughs> and I ain't met no psychopath." Nope. Uh, dude, that was. And then um, he turned over his hands and he had hard work tattooed in his palms. 
I just remember you, like, that was, yeah. I always gave him shit about his tattoos, man. I was like, man, make sure you, where, where do you get your tattoos? And he'd tell me, oh, I get them off of that. I was like, okay, well, you white talker. Like, cause I don't ever want to fucking go there. <laughs> I fuck that. <laughs> the only guy I ever knew that had, what was it, five bowling balls tattooed on the back of his head. <laughs> and he's the only guy. I mean, that what the fuck you got? What are the bowling balls, Lou? He, he went to a colorblind tattoo artist. <laughs> to, like, that's the truth. That's for yeah. I'm totally elite in five different weight classes. So that's what the bowling balls mean. <laughs> yeah. Now I love those tattoos, but it's. Swords, I used to fuck them up. What was this? That was his with, daggers in his back. Yeah, the daggers. I was like, why you got t- tennis rackets on your, your back? back. <laughs> you and Rob Pilger, I uh, gave him the most yep. the most shit over his tattoos. The funniest thing though was one another one of them. Do you remember this? We were sitting in there, and he goes to pay the bill, and he reaches in his pocket, and he's like, he's sitting there, and he's fucking thinking. And you can see these wheels turning. He can't find his money, and he shakes his head. It's like, man, I fucking gave that crackhead, I think, my whole money clip last night. He gave some fucking crackhead bum. He's like, I remember, man. I must have gave him my whole fucking money clip. He, he goes, that was Lou. He's always giving money out to the, the bums and everything else. He had given his whole money clip, and he couldn't pay the bill. <laughs> so he thought he had to come back. He was so upset. <laughs> I, I remember that to where... But because his credit was good at Bob Evans, <laughs> um, I, I mean, at some point we had 30 people there. Yep. Never paid. But I, I remember that. I remember him, too, pulling out his uh, his vitamins. Like, he'd have all his tablets. <laughs> and, and, and then to be changed. And he'd swallow it. And he'd swallow it like a penny. I remember that. I remember when there was a button stuck to the bottom of his... Uh, you know, in some of the shorts, they'd uh-huh. sew a button. And um, he, he thought it was a tablet. And he ended up ripping the pocket out of his shorts. Uh, there's or when he um, he I bet him ten bucks he wouldn't eat a grape from the ground, uh, like it was nasty. And he he's like, ten "Fuck, I yeah. told you right there, that's the yeah. wrong bet to make." <laughs> yeah, but at breakfast and two. I remember the time. Uh, I'll never forget the day. It was the one day the two of us had ordered oats for whatever reason because it was Bob Evans' oats was terrible, and the day Chuck walked in. Oh yeah, yep, and. Um, because yep. we used to sit away from the main table. We're right, we could see everything, but there was the main table, there was the loose seat, and there was everyone else. There was the loose seat, and then directly across from Lou was the seat that whoever sat there was getting kicked out of the jammer that was quitting because it was the jinx seat. Yeah. And then you had the seat next to Lou, and that was Lou's pet. Whoever at that point was Lou's little project, that's where he sat. And then I don't remember what then, the other the, Then there was the, the bottom two corners yep. was... If you didn't want to be involved, you would sit on the same side as Lou because he couldn't turn his head that far <laughs> to that corner. So you get away with it. And, yep. uh, and if you're in the back corner, you were just engaged. Like you were, yeah, it was a, there was a whole dynamic to where yep. you sat. They would sit right across from everybody because they could just sit back and watch and listen. Yeah. Watch everything unfold. But yep, we were sitting there eating breakfast and in comes uh, Chuck and Sonny. You're, yep. And remember looking at you, looking at me, and I'm like, what, what the fuck? And as if it was two long lost buddies, as soon as Chuck sat down with Lou, like that. It was like the, it was like he just seen him yesterday. It was walks in and he says, Hey Chuck, what's up? Yeah. And boom, right in the training. Yep. And to me right there, I could see how important it was uh breakfast. Right, right, you like 
they used to do this all the time. Yep. And they would break down stuff. It was, uh, yeah, that was one of the, one of the many. Was, yeah. And that's a, that's and like the food a, was terrible. Horrible. Terrible. It still is. And, yeah. And, but it's, it's a dynamic that it, 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 it's a, it meant something, yeah. you know, and it was a time to sit there and eat and talk about training, talk shit, talk about the fights, do whatever, wake up, you know, and just kind of hang, hang out with everybody. Because even if you didn't like some of the guys there or all the guys there, you still were kind of a family. You know, the the whole breakfast thing, I mean, hell, Chuck and I, we still have breakfast every Saturday or Sunday. Yeah. You, we usually train on Saturdays, but that's something now. I've had breakfast with Chuck now for how many years ago was that? Seven? Yeah, so seven. like the last seven years, pretty much every yeah. weekend for the most part. You're right, though. It did allow you to see glimpses into other people's lives. Yep. And you're like, oh, that makes sense why that's their decision-making system and you're like okay and yep. then two i saw for other for other lifters that's the motivation you needed like this fucker like it just allowed you to um just to process the gym dynamics before it and it gave you very unique access to louis yep to uh if you ever there was a time louis would get to bob evans about 5 15. bob evans would open at six and he'd be at the door sometimes he would open up bob evans with people there you wouldn't come to breakfast until 6.30. Yeah, otherwise, you'd yeah, be pissed yeah. off. That, that 30 was minutes time. was loot. But if you had something going on, so if you came to breakfast and someone was there before 6.30, either someone's going to jail, someone's in trouble, but that gave you very unique access to Lou. And then after that, the smaller groups, when maybe four people to turn up, that's when you like you get these great stories. And uh, going to meets, like getting bre I used to love getting breakfast uh, right when we get there the day before the meet yep because lou was all jacked up waiting yep. for people to that do his stuff favorite time yeah um do you have any memorable gym stories with lou gym stories with lou man i got a bunch of gym stories <laughs> uh even those any any gym stories that you think that helped shape you what Westside was just man, the biggest thing is it, it, Lou and him just running his mouth nonstop to everybody, you know. And he nicknamed like he had some things he'd call certain people. I like to nickname people, and then they would stick. Like yeah. uh, Wes started calling Wes a spoon. And that name—that's all he got called forever. And Lou people up spoon. I like spoon. The breakfast because I said, man, Wes was sitting there running his mouth about something, and I said, boy. You're a fucking spoon in a drawer full of knives. And Lou just died laughing. And that was it from then on. Spoon. So he always, he, he, he just would drive it. You can't do that. He, he told me one day, I remember going in, and there was five nine, 585 on the bar on a Saturday sitting on the floor. Everybody knows I'm the world's shittiest deadlifter. We walk in, we do dynamic bench on Saturday. You know, I am go in, I'm sitting on the bench, I'm looking over at the bar, and for whatever reason, I was like, man, I could fucking pull, maybe I, I could pull that right now. I know I can. And I looked at Lou, and I said, hey, Lou, I said, I bet I could walk over to that bar and pull it right now. And I knew he was going to say exactly, he was like, you can't pull that. And I said, cold, no warm-up. And he's like, 
I think he thought I was fucking around with him. I was being serious. I said, man, I'm going to fucking pull that bar. So I walk over, I look at that bar, and I, I, I knew for some fucking reason I was going to pull that goddamn bar. I look, stare at it, I look over at Lou, and he's just shaking his head. And that's when it clicked. I'm like, this motherfucker, man, fuck him, watch this. And I went down, I grabbed that bar, and I fucking pulled it, which most people, that's that doesn't mean shit. But for me, that's a big-ass fucking pull. Not cold, no warm-up, not in gear, nothing. I pulled it, locked it out, set it down, and looked over at Lou. I said, fuck you. <laughs> and he said, that's West Side. That's West Side. He goes, strong is strong. We're always strong. But he, just, he had a way of making me do shit that just because... I wanted to do it for him, but yeah. I also wanted to do it to piss him off. Which eventually was for him anyway. Exactly, yep. Um, one memory I have of you two was the last time I ever seen him deadlift mid-sixes was that the pimples. Yes. Do you remember what? I think that was one of the last times he pulled. It, well, it's definitely the last time he pulled heavy. Yep. Um, <laughs> can you remember what led up to that? Because... I remember the shit talking was at an all-time high from breakfast all the way into the gym. What led to that? I started pinpooling, and we had been talking shit, and it wasn't even about deadlifting. It was just about training, and he was telling me that I trained too heavy, too often, and I told him, fuck you, I, pretty, <laughs> I know what I'm doing. I'm on that goddamn board nine times. That shuts him up for a minute. Just for a minute, because then he comes back, well, maybe you'd be on that fucking board 10 or 12 times if you did it the right way. So no matter <laughs> what you say, he's always going to one-up it. I went over, and I started pin-pulling, and I see him come out from behind me, and the back area, he comes, and he's got his fucking that thing on. And I'm like, what is this fucker going to do? And he comes over, and he says, mind if I get in here? I'm like, well, I don't care. Fuck, let's go. And we start pulling. And he pulls. I put a plate on. I pull it. He pulls it. But other plate. I pull it. He pulls it. I think it was, I don't remember if it was five or six. It was, no, it had to have been over five. So it's probably six plates. Um, I pulled. It fell out of my hand right at lockout. That fucker looks over at me and just kind of, shakes his head a little bit, walks over there, and he pulled it and locked it out, set it down, doesn't say anything, just walks off. And I felt about this big. And it wasn't because I, it was because I'm like, this motherfucker just beat me. I remember when it did slip, it was like a shark of blood in the water. It was like, yep. he, he knew, like he right then and there, and that was, uh, it was such a, because we didn't see much of that. We saw Louis was still benching when I came here. You came yep. around the same time. Yep. So we, we had that, which was funny, just watching Lou bench because he would go to a meet and he would forget. He had maybe have five shirts and forget the shirt he's supposed to do. Then his nose would start bleeding and go down yeah. his face. And, um, and he was still speed squatting and doing relatively heavy squats, but not maximal. But to see him be in that zone where you have all these generations of people who talk about, hey, Louis is a training partner with something else. You could see right there and then there was no, it was like no quarters, plate, 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 plate. Yep. And as soon as that slipped, boom, he was and on. And I fucking knew it too. Yeah. I fucking knew it too. 
And man, but now looking back, that's one of that's a real. I mean, I love thinking about that. You know, but, you know he he fucking got me. And then there was <laughs> this fucker. He tells me. He wants that old school mentality, you know. He told me that was one of the reasons he he always called me a throwback, you know. That I should have been here. <laughs> amongst know. other things, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, amongst <laughs> other things. But uh, there was a couple people I had some issues with at the end of the gym, and I won't say any names. But these people, we you know, were not little boys. One was fucking big, big boy. The other one was was he was three oh eight. Um, <laughs> so the, the, the first one comes in and starts, he had been talking outside his neck, saying some bullshit that pissed me off. And Hoff's actually the one that had told me about it, you know. You know, so-and-so told me that, uh, and Hoff stops because like, he says, listen, I'm going to tell you this, but before I say, I know you, and I know this ain't what happened, but this is what he told me. You guys was over at, at the meet over there at Sweatshop, and you guys squared up, and he punched you, and you told him, I don't want to fight. And I'm living instantly. This motherfucker, what? And I was like, buddy, I, I know, I know. And I'm like, no, bro, I'm going to fucking do something to him. Hoff's like, no, just let it simmer. Just let it simmer. And then just release it when you're training, you know, just... Like so, I let it go for about a week. It was a Wednesday. It was bench. You were on the over there in the rack right, doing yeah. inclines, and he walks into the gym. And that's when Oliveira was still here, and I see him. The music's blaring, and I see him come in. So I'm like, "All right, I'm gonna get this fucking guy." And I said, "Hey, hey, Anthony, ears." He was like, "What?" And I'm yelling just so he could hear me. And I said, did you know that so-and-so punched me in my fucking mouth? Let me, re let me go back to the meat. See, now this isn't what happened either. He took a story and totally reversed it because we're at the meat getting ready for squats. We're in full fucking gear. And he's talking about fighting and this and that. And, you know, if he fought me and I'm like, he'd grab a hold, blah, blah, blah. And I said, dude. If you fucking fight, I'm not going to let you get a hold of me, motherfucker. You're not fixing to grab me. You know, you're fucking 300 plus pounds. I'm not letting you grab me. And he's like, oh, you, you, and I'm like, man, I'm telling you right now, you get close, I'm going to lay your ass down. So he squared up with me. And he squared up like he wants to fucking sit there and shadow or slap box or whatever. And he tries to take a swing at me. When he does, I slipped his swing and I fucking caught him right in the face with an open palm, but I palmed him. And he went sideways, his eyes, and fell into the equipment. And starts, oh, I don't want to fight. I don't want to fight. So there was no punches thrown. And he sure is, I mean, unless you want to call what he did. Now, he turns that whole thing around and makes it to where, I mean, he reversed roles. So I say, you, you hear this motherfucker hit me in my mouth and then told me, I tell him, I don't want to fight. He walks over to me. What are, what are you talking with, Coca? And I'm telling him, dude, you need to get the fuck away from me. Just, just get the fuck away from me. And he keeps pushing. He keeps pushing. And all I think is, man, if, if I lay this motherfucker out, he's going to call the cops. And my dumb ass, I'm smacking him, slapping him is the same thing. But in my mind, it's different. So I think I'm going to do worse. I'm going to take his man card. I'm going to make him look bad in front of everybody. 
he leaned in and I slapped him so hard his face was red and fucking you could see the imprint. <laughs> mouthpiece, he's holding the mouthpiece in one hand. <laughs> takes a step, kind of. <clears throat> now I'm thinking we're good. Now we're going to fight. <laughs> he says, what did I ever been mean to you? When was I ever mean to you? <laughs> it asked me, hey, uh, you want me to give you a handoff now? <laughs> so go ahead. I will never forget this whole because as an observer of everything <laughs> going on, I was in that white rack. And I can remember because I did about 150 reps because I was not stopping. Because you could hear everyone shouts because there's always shit talking. Nope. And then it was just two voices. And you're like, oh, something's going on. And I remember like just peeking up. And that dude had a, his mouth guard in his... I'm like, this is probably a good opportunity for you to put that mouth guard in your mouth because this is going somewhere. And I remember watching you before. I think it was with Rob Pilger. We were talking about you could close distance really good. And he's like, there's no fucking... And you could... Like, you can close distance. You're deceptively fast. Well, me and Rob had been fighting, not fighting, yeah. but slap boxing yeah. out in the parking lot. And uh, I was like, this is not going to go well. And then he leaned his head, extended out his jaw, gum shield or mouth guard in his hand. And I can just remember, I'm just keep going like this. It's like a train wreck. And you're like, no, no, he's not going to. And then whap. <laughs> the whole place was quiet. I remember Lou was even going. Yeah, because you could hear the slap yeah. over the music. And uh, then everything was quiet. And do, you, uh, do you need a handoff? And then that was, that was that was just it. Everyone's like, oh, we're getting the fuck out of here. Yeah, I'm not going to let yeah. this dude hand off for me. So that was strike one. I'm thinking, Lou, from what, you know, that's old. That's way the west side. That's, and there's been a few things before that. But then the next one was a while later. There was a, we had a 308 that used to come in. And we got into it. We spotted on the same fucking monolith for how many year, years and years and years at the same time. He decides he's going to squat over, long, long squat over there before... I squatted, and he was wrong. Um, he got too close and made an aggressive move, and I knocked him out. And I'll never forget Chuck leaned up against the wall watching the whole thing and just kind of with a smirk. This dude's laid out over the deal. When he comes to, he shakes his head, runs over, grabs a kettlebell, and starts screaming, What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> I'm trying to goad him to swing the kettlebell because I figure once he swings that kettlebell, I can just kill him in here and get away with it. You know, he does it. But this happens, and Lou gets pissed off at me and tells me, Calker, you got to start leaving them boys alone. And my jaw hit the floor. I'm like, what? <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? Them boys are fucking 300-plus pounds. Then boy, I, he, and he he got, uh, and that's when I started seeing a difference in Lou. Mm -hmm. Like he, it, the, the, that's when things started changing. And I was, I, should I have done what I did? No, you know, I was an asshole. Well, actually, no, nah, I take that back. I should have on both accounts. <laughs> but still, I'm not saying it was the right thing, mm -hmm. but that's when I started, that's when I realized things were starting to change. Um and Lou, his mentality was starting to change. And maybe it was just age. You know, he was just getting a little bit older and wiser. And 
West Side was starting to change a little bit. And I now I look back and I know exactly what it was. And it was that he was trying, he didn't want anybody that had any kind of potential, he didn't want to lose. And he sure as shit didn't want to lose them because, you know, there was an issue with that person and someone else in the gym. And that's in it. I think back in the day, he probably had a pool of strong people. Well, my two cents in it, and I'd never talk or anything on Lou's behalf because everyone got a different Lou. But you did realize Lou's personality is based on the people he's around. So when he's coming from a group of killers, Lou's a killer. He's all for that mentality. But he was trying to, he would reinvent himself to benefit the group. And when the group changed, because we've seen three or four complete group changes, and he was trying to figure out how to deal with these guys, and he knew that they were different. Yep. And when you had a personality and mindset of yours, similar to the same with Burley, you had all these guys who were, have that killer mentality, that, but you're the, the minority, not the majority. Lou was trying to figure out how do we keep everyone in here. Right. And that seemed to be, and he, he struggled with that because he struggled with this new generation of athlete. And because uh, he was so used to a gym like, full of people that yeah, were, and the, it wasn't that way. Yeah, there was there was no weakness. Was well, whatever you determine weakness was just pushed out, and then times change, and that's where you could see he was trying to morally. He lived back in those generations of the seventies, eighties, and nineties, where it was kill or be killed. It was fun, run your mouth, run people out of the gym, and strength was everything. Like it was everything was maximal. Now he's trying to figure out how do we convert the best parts of that into this culture whose personalities are very different. And that's what I saw from the outside looking in. And um, it was a conflict. It was hard for you because you could see you guys, uh, as much as both you didn't want to accept it, thought alike and saw stuff alike. But one had to be a coach and you were a lifter at the time. And that circles back into a question. Now that you coach athletes and you're still a lifter but you actually work with people more do you understand more louis points and advice at the time that you mightn't have then absolutely i understand a lot more i understand why he gets so frustrated with me doing a lot of the things that i did especially now i tell christine all the time man now i i feel bad at times for some of the some of the things because I, I I help out some guys, and when they do something polar opposite than what I what I've told them to do, it drives me fucking insane. And I understand a lot of the stuff where he you know he told me not to do this or do this, so that I wouldn't get hurt. And he was looking he he had been there and done that every mistake he he had made all the mistakes already. And his goal and hopes were that because he had made them, we don't have to. Yeah. He can prevent us from making them. And if you're watching somebody that has potential, regardless if they're doing good, but they're doing shit that you're telling them is going to hurt them or could hurt them, and you know that because you've done the same thing and it's fucked you up, it's one of the most frustrating things in the world because you've been there. You know, I tell my guys all the time, I've made every fucking mistake that I, you can make just about, 
you know, and I've made those so that hopefully you don't have to. It's kind of like having a kid, you know. You've lived life, you have a kid. Hopefully they don't make the same mistakes that you do because you've done it so you can teach them better mm -hmm. so they don't, they can make a whole new set of mistakes but not the same ones. And so I understand that for sure. And the frustration, in the frustration of, you know, because there was times where I kind of did something different than everybody else and I get why that was an issue because if I'm doing it, and, and honestly, especially if it's working, well, just because it works for me doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody else. Yeah. And the last thing he needed was somebody doing something that they shouldn't, that he didn't feel like they should be doing, and these other guys seeing it, and now they want to try it. So I, I, I yes, absolutely, I understand a uh, lot of it. I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of it, but there's a very, you're a unique person in many ways, but one is when you and Lou went your separate ways for whatever reasons, you still never drop contact. No. And that's a rare thing. There's a few people who've done similar to you, but um, why? Like what made you go compared to other people who said, fuck Lou, fuck Westside, go do their own thing. And for the rest of time, badmouth the place. Why didn't you go down that road? Uh, one, I'm loyal to a fault. Uh, so I was, I've always been loyal to Lou. Uh, two, Lou, like a lot of people, I think Lou was, he was a friend and in, in, in ways kind of almost like a father figure to me. Uh, you know, I didn't have much of a, a dad at all. I was on the street 13 years old. So... Lou kind of, he was somebody that I looked up to and respected. And, I mean, in all honesty, I didn't want, it's kind of like when you say there's business and personal, you know, this is, it, it was business in a sense, the gym, and what was going on there versus personal because he was my friend. And I didn't want to lose that. You know, just because I didn't train here anymore, it doesn't mean that, you know, I didn't give a shit about Lou. Because yeah. I did. And I wasn't going to lose that. And I reached out to him. And, I mean, I came down here usually a couple times a month. This was when I had back surgery. Before I had back surgery, I came and talked to him. And you know you're bad when Lou tells you you need to get something done. Yeah. Because, I mean, I was crippled, literally crippled. And he told, I asked him, you know, when I, whenever I'm done with this, can I come in? I don't have to be a part of West Side, you know, but I want to be around. And he said, absolutely. He said, you know, he said, yes. And I just, like I said, I, I, I always, I looked up to him and I didn't want, I wasn't going to lose that. His friendship meant more to me than lifting ever did. And he's why I did a lot of the things that I did. And I feel like, what kind of man would I be if I let the, the argument that we had, because essentially that's all it was. It was the perfect storm. We'd had the same argument, fuck, a thousand times. But it was the perfect storm, the perfect situ circumstances, you know, the right people around when everything went down. It was just the timing of everything. It blew up and we parted ways. But how, I mean, why would I let that ruin? And especially when I knew that 
we were both wrong. It wasn't yeah. a situation I never, you know, he was there. We both were wrong. We both were right in a sense. There was no wrong person. I guess maybe it'd be a better way to put it. Um, but yeah, his friendship meant more to me than anything else. Because what I loved, you never stopped making him awkward. And what I mean by this is there's very few people that could do stuff to Luke. Jake Anderson was very good at it too in different ways. But you would come at Christmas with Christmas cards with uh, Christine would make these phenomenal homemade uh, uh, cookies and pies and give them and then dog biscuits and Lou would have no idea what to do. You'd also call him up and end the phone call with, hey Lou, I love you. And he'd be like, don't you ever, ever, ever say that. And you're like, yeah, I'm sorry. Lou, love you. And then hang up the phone. And I'd be in the office when he's like, did you hear what he just said? Like, Can you believe? He's a grown man. Fuck grown man. And, uh, but it never stopped. And it never stopped when you got you moved out of the gym, did your own thing, but you always stayed in contact, which is one thing that, uh, obviously we've been friends for a long time, but I do admire that aspect in anybody, especially you being able to keep that friendship up until the end and uh, to never have stopped that. It was a unique thing. And you said, Louis needs that too. Yep. He needs, he doesn't need yes people in his life because there's too many of those. Yep. He needs the people who call him. Like the, we just talked about it before we started when he would get the just for men. And I don't think, I'm pretty sure it was shoe polish, but when he would dye his beard. dye his beard. And as soon he came into breakfast, I just went, might as well put the food away because this is just going to go down. <laughs> and, um, but like just that, he loved that to the end. Like that was just the shit I talking. loved it. I mean, it was, he and I, like I said, it was different. And we just, we were so much alike. And that was one of the reasons I could get under his skin the way I could and vice versa. And I knew how to. But it was fun, too. I yeah. mean, we both loved just talking shit to each other, and it never stopped. I mean, it, it, it always, it was, it, but there was a, a mutual respect. Like, I respect Lou the, very, very much so. And the one thing he told me that I, either he, he told me after we went separate ways, he said, you know, I want you to know you're, you're always West Side. That'll never change. Another thing too, Louis would never say it, but by his actions, you knew that there was a hierarchy of people at times. But with you, he might say something to somebody because knowing he's going to get back to them. Usually it was nothing too bad, but it was something to start stuff. With you, he would say way worse stuff to your face <laughs> and behind the scenes just take him back because there's no difference. Right. And um, that's only with people that he knows he can say stuff to. Yep. And that's another big thing to where you're like, okay, this is why you're a part of here. Uh, circling back into the injury. Now, you've been injured times, but this back injury was... Brutal. When did you know that you were surgically injured? Oh, man, I've known for years that I was going to have surgery. Yeah. I told myself I wasn't, but I knew because I was in excruciating pain constantly and it was getting progressively worse. The last year before the surgery was when I knew that it was time. Um, I had put it off, put it off. I'd went in and had my neurosurgeon. He did a uh, an MRI and he, I had heard about the injections, you know, and, 
he said, listen, I told him this was right when COVID was first starting. He said, I said, I, I, uh, when he's telling me the results of the MRI, I said, I, I don't want to have surgery. And he goes, well, you're going to have surgery. And I said, well, I'm not, I, you know, I don't want to, I'm not ready for surgery right now. And he says, listen, he says, what I'm going to suggest to you is you get your house in order because it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And he said, you got two options. You're either going to have a scheduled surgery or an emergency surgery, but you're having surgery. And I asked him, I said, well, what about the injections? Because I hadn't tried those yet. Yeah. He said, no. He said, all you're doing is pushing, kicking the can a little further down the road. Epidurals? Yes. Yeah. And in my mind, I thought I'd be able, the epidurals were going to work because I hadn't tried them. And I would do the epidurals and then live on epidurals for the rest of my life. And it's because some people do. But he told me that it, my back was far too gone. That there was nothing short of surgery. So I said, well, I'm going to try the epidurals anyway. So uh, I went and I got a set of epidurals. They told me, give it, you know, a little, a few days. Um, but hopefully I get some relief for at least a couple, you know, a couple months. Even a couple weeks would have been good. Nothing. I got the, the, the first epidural, the next morning I woke up, or was it the second one? No, the first one didn't do anything. So they scheduled me for a second, which was like a month later. I went and I had the second ones done. And the morning after I woke up and I could move a little bit better. And I thought, oh, maybe they work, you know, and I got really excited. So I went to work. I was still working. And there was the people's house that I was painting. They had a swimming pool. And their grandchild had thrown a bunch of rocks down in the bottom of the pool in the deep end, which for me is the five foot. <laughs> they threw they had thrown a bunch of rocks in there and I asked them I said well you want when I'm done working today I'll jump down there cool off and get them out and they're like yeah that's that's that'll work you know I've been working on these their house all summer yeah. so I had a good relationship with them so at the end of the day I dove into the pool and went down and I got all the rocks out brought them up I got out of the pool and I took a step and froze instantly. And the pain that I felt, I th it was worse than anything I'd ever felt in my entire life. I mean, I yelled out, froze, and didn't move. And I could take another step, same thing. It took me 30 minutes to get maybe 50 yards to my truck because the pain was so bad. Uh, so I called the doctor and told him, hey, he scheduled me in. I went in and I said, man, I said, I, we got to do something. I can't lie. You know, I need, I, now I'm telling him, when can I have surgery? And he says, man, I'd love to get you in tomorrow, but it sounds like you've done something else now. So I want to do another MRI because I want to know what we're getting into before we do it. So I had another MRI and that's when he told me, he said, yeah, you're going to need a at least three, maybe four level fusion. You know, your back is done. So they, we scheduled the surgery and I had the surgery October 21st of, I don't know, like a year, has it been a year and a half? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. a year and a half ago. What was, was going through your mind when you, like just say leading up to this, that the fact that you're there at the point that you never thought would come, you're having surgery. Did you like, oh, this is me stopping lifting, this is it? Uh, yeah, I did. Yep. Even after the surgery, I thought I was, I was like, fuck it. I, uh, I'm done. I, you and I had breakfast and yeah. I said, adamant, and I believed it that I was done. And I meant it when I said it. 
And I was back in the gym a week later. I wasn't supposed to be, but I was. And then, fuck, I had a 45-pound bar on my back before I knew it. Um, and I was like, yeah, well, that's fine. I'm still not competing, you know. I'm just trying to get healthy again, get strong. 45-pound plate. Next thing I know, there's quarters on each side and then a plate. And fucking now, all of a sudden, I've got a band attached to it. And then there's chains and... Now there's four plates, and now, oh, man, I bet I could do something again. And I decided I was going to. And it's been a long, grueling, miserable road up until the last, well, I'd say the last few months. It's been a mental game because you go from, you know, squatting over a 1,000 pounds to literally having to relearn how to squat again because everything changes and I've got three cages and a bone graph and from L2, L3, L4, L5, all the way down to S1. So that part of my back is a near, not that I was super mobile, but it's not very mobile anymore at all. Um, so even just a little bit, it's going to change your form, and it did. And it it's taken a year just to get everything figured out again. I didn't start feeling comfortable under the bar. It's been, I think... Two months ago, I said I actually feel comfortable under here. You know, I might have looked comfortable, or I looked like I was confident, but inside I was a, I was like, fuck. In the back of my mind, that injury was there, and you know, I'm thinking, okay, I got to do this, do this. The whole entire time, I'm thinking about the injury, you know, than I was about my form. And I'm finally now I'm to a place where I don't think about it at all anymore. But it's it's probably the hardest. If I hadn't have been strong before, I don't think it would have been a big deal. But the fact is, they told me there's no way I'd be able to do this. There's no way. And I don't know of too many people other than Chuck that have had a surgery, this surgery, and continued powerlifting. Yeah. I just, I haven't heard of them. And I'm not that I'm special or he's special, but I do believe that it takes a certain mentality because it's it ain't easy. And shut me down here if this is going off topic, but how was that received by Christine? Actually, she, in the beginning, you know, come to think of it, I feel, and I think she was all for no meat, you know, but she's always supported me 100%. Yeah. Um, but I told her, when at one point I do remember telling her that you know this I was done, and I remember her at one point saying, "Are you sure that's how you want to leave the sport? You know, is this way?" And she's been she's been for she's been a hundred percent behind me. Now I know she worries. You know I know I had a huge wreck in the monolith last week and. I shouldn't have told her about it, but I did. Yeah. And I know she worries, but in my mind, now that the surgery's done and all that hardware is set, everything's healed, you know, my neurosurgeon did tell me that that portion of my back would be stronger than it ever was. Yeah. I mean, fuck, it's all titanium and steel or whatever it is, you know. So, um, but it's everything either under or above that's compromised. Well, under, I don't have to worry about because I'm fused all the way down to my tailbone. 
So it's just the ones up, up top. And from what the neurosurgeon told me and my spine doctor told me from all the MRIs that I have had and x-rays, they said that my, the, my uh, thoracic and my cervical is all like concrete. So hopefully that, you know, gets me through. I don't worry about it just like yeah. I didn't worry Before. about getting injured. Yeah. I've never been afraid of. Did it uh, make you focus on accessory work more? Um, yes, especially, namely, the reverse hyper. For sure. We actually have a reverse hyper, thanks to a good friend of mine. Uh, we've got one in our basement, and I use that thing. Uh, I use the one at the gym. So, yeah, I, I do a lot of reverse hypers, a lot of traction. Did you talk to Lou before and after surgery? Oh, yeah. Yep. He didn't think. He actually tried to tell. He was uh, not too keen on the idea of me trying to make a comeback. Yeah. Because when I started talking about it, he tried to shut me down. Well. Which and, shocked me. Yeah. But as we said before, he went through all yep. these things. Um, which I think is a side to that not many people know. Right. Is that when you get Lou by yourself, you get Lou. And he's going to err on the side of, like, he doesn't want to see people get fucked up. And see, and that goes with, there's that's where people mistake, like, guys that train with me. I, there's a difference in someone being sore and hurting. I'm the wrong person. I know what back pain is. Yeah. And I know, I mean, I'm not a fucking doctor, but I know when someone is, and I don't, I don't want to hear, I don't, do I want you to fuck? No, I don't want anyone going through what I went through. But do I don't do I want someone sitting there because their back is achy saying when they've been you, they have said nothing about it they're moving weights fine you can watch them and tell there's nothing wrong with them but because they have a shit day in the squat now all of a sudden well my back's fucked up yeah. you know and I've got a herniated disc that gets so old hearing that shit because every powerlifter probably on the planet Earth ninety percent of them have herniated discs I mean dude we all with age probably have had 90% of people in general have herniated discs. So, but do I want some, I, anything, I, people think Lou, a lot of people have this, that Lou didn't give a shit if you got hurt, which is bullshit. But Lou, Lou did give a shit if you got hurt and he mm -hmm. didn't want you to get hurt. Lou also didn't want you to be a bitch and because you stubbed your toe, talk about you couldn't squat or because you were a little sore, you know, there's a difference in being hurt, truly hurt or injured or is it injured and being yeah. hurt? There's a huge fucking difference. And people in this sport have this false, cons they, they think that this shit's comfortable and easy, and it ain't, and you're never going to be pain-free. And 90% of lifters out there or wannabe lifters, as soon as they start feeling the aches and pains, you think you're going to put hundreds of pounds in your hands that you're not supposed to lift or on your back, and you're going to feel good? Fuck no. This isn't aerobics and fitness. Well, there's a big separation from your level of powerlifter because the, the weight you're handling on a consistent basis, volume-wise, is astronomical. There's a big difference from benching 200 pounds to, and raw gear, what it is, but you're still handling five, mid-fives raw, and then 900. Like, that's an accumulative volume that right. no one can comprehend. So I'm... At least you have a you have a tolerance perspective that they're not going to understand, but they should trust enough, which for some will and others won't. Right. 
Um, so to finish up on, we have a few questions we got in. Um, and they're just basic training questions, if you wouldn't mind just going through. One is for bench press, how important were your accessories over main movements? I, they're huge. Accessories are everything. I, folk, I blast my triceps and I do a lot of shoulders. I, I preach shoulders and triceps. Uh, my main movement's huge too. You know, I, I am going to do some sort yeah. of bench. I don't typically do a lot of floor pressing, but I do change bars almost every week where we bench with a different bar. But then once we do our max, you know, our maximum effort on the bench, we're going to do a lot of triceps. Do you have any exercises that you know if you do it carries over immediately? Dirty 30s. What are those? Uh, 10 skull crushers with the easy curl bite. Well, you can do it with any bar, but 10 skull crushers, then 10 pullovers, and then 10 close grip, basically, you know, bench, bench press. And like back, that's one set, 10, 10, yeah. 10, done. Do you uh, push the weight every time you do it? Yes. Yep. Every set, you add weight. And then obviously, I don't do them every week. Yeah. But every set, add weight and then try to, the next time you do them, you know, add more to what you used to do. What about for shoulders? Shoulders, I do a pressing movement each week. I alternate my pressing movement. One week might be standing barbell presses. The next week will be... Uh, sitting dumbbell presses you know maybe uh i don't know what are they called when you sit on the floor and press with, with your with a barbell i don't remember with, that, with no back support yes they fucking suck so, yeah yep, those uh but every week on my dynamic day i'll do my dynamic work and then i focus on shoulders and i'll do a heavy pressing movement and then once I do that, I'm blasting my front delts, side delts, rear delts, and just with bullshit, you know, front raise, side yeah. raise, lateral raise, stuff like that. How important is speed work to you? It's not. To, I'm not on my bench. Yeah. I don't do it. I do volume versus speed. I'll do, you know, six by six, eight by eight, things like that um, with lighter weights. I don't, very rarely do I do true speed work yeah and that's because you got way better carryover from i get much better carryover with volume and with speed work it the it, it just it destroys i've got corporal tunnel and tendonitis real real and it ruins me to where i it's excruciating to bench or squat yeah so it and i just i never i didn't get carryover from it well and that's another thing that people understand there's exceptions to everything yep but you found the way for you to train and to succeed which correct me if i'm wrong but conjugate is learning the system and then tailoring it for you to you specifically yeah. and that's where people fuck a lot of things up is they learn the system they overcomplicate it and then they try to do the same thing that you're doing or doing the exact same thing that he's doing instead of learning it and tailoring it to, and you're going to have to experiment. Yeah. I mean, maybe I do exactly what you do a few times and see if it works. If it works, great. If it works, then it quits working, and then you start tweaking things and try something different. There was a, a shot putter. His name was Werner Gunner or Gunther. He had a very unique way he threw the shot. 
So he set multiple records and everyone started copying them. And all their throws went down. And they're like, what the fuck? How is this guy setting all these records? So they went up and asked him, like, uh, everyone's trying the way you throw and they can't succeed. And they're like, what do you mean the way I throw? You, throw, you, you tr uh, throw such a unique way. He's like, well, I injured my back and did all these other things. So this is the only way I can throw. So I found a way to throw. This is not how I would, but I had to find a way. And I think a lot of people look at the top, look at you, world record bench, well, I'm going to follow Jason Coker. Will it work for some? Possibly. Will it work for everyone? No. Because you found your way in over a period of time. Yep. And that's the, that's the hard thing to communicate to people. It's, uh, Louis used to call it a, was it a magazine of the month. <laughs> you train like GSP and you're like, I'm going to be like GSP. Like, no, there's only one GSP. You just try to pick out universal from it. And uh, that's one thing that it's, it's hard when people go, well, Jason doesn't do speed work. And like, well, you're not Jason Coker. There's a big difference with that. And there's a big difference from a beginner to a pro. You guys are pro athletes. And um, that's, uh, I think, the factor in for people who are going to go and like, well, I don't need to do this. Like, you don't know what you don't need and what you do need until you're in it for a minute. And see, and that's a lot of, that is the problem with a lot of people too that lift that are strong, but they train in these powerlifting gyms or train in a state that, you know, Texas got a, strong, a lot of strong lifters, Ohio. Some of these places where there's a lot of pro caliber lifters or they go to these pro meets, they get frustrated because I'm telling guys all the time, dude, you're strong as fuck, but you're seeing things from the wrong perspective. You're seeing the majority of the lifters you know or associate with or see are world-class lifters. That's the exception, not the rule. Yeah. That's a very small amount of people. And so guys get discouraged because they're like, fuck, I'm never, no, bullshit. We all started somewhere. You know, we did not, nobody got that strong just instantly. Yeah. And they, they get discouraged and they don't, they don't realize they really are strong. They just, they're, they're seeing the cream of the crop, so to speak. And you can't compare yourself to them yet. What are some of the best uh, bar variations for max effort you've used? I like the giant camber bar on squat. I love that bar. Um, I I like the safety squat bar. I like it, but I hate it. And then as far as uh, benching, I like the camber bars, like the buffalo bar, yeah. the three-inch camber, five-inch camber. But I will say before anybody if they've never used it they need to make sure their form and their technique is dialed in especially if you start messing with the three inch camber or a five inch camber because if your elbows aren't in if you're flared out like a bodybuilder you're gonna blow your pecs off if you had a group of beginners starting what's three tips you would give them listen be patient and like Louis used to always say, it's a uh, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Jason, thank you for coming in.